Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 1, Chapters 11 and 12 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 1, read by Jeff Breitman. Chapter 11 Secrets The next day, Marcus and I rode to the other island. When we walked into the green, I approached Morgan, avoiding her lapis blue eyes. I thought I might teach the children the psalter. She looked surprised. I suppose, if you think it's right... I bent down and put my hand on Brian's shoulder, the boy who loved shells. Would you like to learn the Psalter? The boy furrowed his brow and shrugged. Maybe. Edith skipped up to us and put her arms around the boy from behind. Are there shells in the book? She asked with a smile. There's a wondrous animal of the sea, called the Hillazon, which the Jews use to make their special blue dye, I said. You see, she said to Brian. Brian wriggled free. We'll see about that. I went toward the house, and Edith immediately gathered the children, and we sat outside. This is the Psalter. I held up the book, which was scribed in large letters for children. These are prayers that we chant every day. I could tell you what the letters are, but they're in Latin. I'll read it out to you, and you repeat it back to me. The children did as they were told, and we read psalms a while. Edith recited with a look of concentration. She squeezed the hands of the children next to her and encouraged them. What does it mean? asked Emer, the girl who'd given Brian the top shell. This one asks for God to give us strength when our enemies are against us. How do we know who the enemy is? A small boy of about four years grabbed her by the arm. I'm your enemy! Edith pulled him back. Hush! You're no one's enemy! Only grown-ups have enemies. Isn't that right? I shook my head. The enemy is the devil. Only the devil. Edith's eyes widened. Does he tempt us to... to lie? And do bad things? I... Edith looked down. She spoke haltingly. There must be a great deal that is at war all around us. Sometimes it seems all we have to do are our daily tasks and eat and sleep and nothing more, as if we were dolls that could move and eat but no more than dolls, or animals that see nothing. But there is something, there must be. God is something more, isn't he? Yes, so he is. 
And prayer opens your heart to God. It opens up your soul when it's shut tight against God's word. She looked up at me. We must be more than animals. Brian made a dramatic wave of his arm and jumped up. You are mad sometimes. Everything must be proved to you. I'm going out to look for shells before it's dark. He left, followed by Emer. Edith cocked her head. It's happiness to love one thing and find it on the sand every day. I shall love God, and I will find him wherever I look. He will seem hidden at times. When he is hidden, I will pray. That will make the eyes of my soul keener for seeing him. You are a wiser child of God than I am, I said. She gave a little laugh and tugged on my sleeve, her green eyes sparkling at me. She had been holding back tears. You seem awfully doubtful for a monk. Perhaps. You are right in everything. I only meant that sometimes the simplest goal requires the greatest exertion. Edith clasped her hands. You must know all about the saints, of Brigid and Kevin and Columba and Patrick. I know a bit. You know the breastplate of St. Patrick is called the deer's cry? Why? Well, it happened that when Patrick and his eight companions went to Tara to challenge the High King, they were turned into deer, so they could go through the forest undetected by his soldiers. This is the deer's cry. I stood up and spread my arms, and Edith and the children did likewise. I taught them the prayer. Christ be with me, Christ be before me, Christ be behind me, Christ be with me, Christ be beneath me, Christ be above me, Christ be at my right, Christ be at my left, Christ be in the fort, Christ be in the chariot, Christ be in the ship. Christ be in the heart of every one who thinks of me. Christ be in the mouth of every one who speaks of me. Christ be in every eye that sees me. Christ be in every ear that hears me. Amen. Morgan approached us. Edith, you must get the bread. Edith left for the oven leaving me alone with Morgan, who began weaving at the loom against the wall of the house. Her back was to me, straight, as she leaned from her ankles. The wide neck of her green dress revealed the base of her neck curving into her muscular back. I saw every little muscle pulsing to her effort, diamond-shaped muscles between her shoulder blades rising and flattening in rhythm. The shadows created by her muscles were blue, and the highlights of her skin glistened with a fine sweat. My sense of her motion was increased by the steady sound of the loom, drumming a beat to her swaying back. With the beat of the loom to measure time, 
She sang softly, the notes on the downbeat a little louder, some force on the exhale as she beat up the weft. Her voice was husky and high. The sound of it recalled to me the sound of fire, the way it breathed, her voice like fire singing. Pleasure vibrated within me. Edith returned with Marcus and Fiona, carrying the bread. Fiona carried a pot of meat. You see, I cooked as I was supposed to, Morgan. I do more than you think, Fiona said, setting the pot on the table. Morgan put up the beater with a prayer to St. Bridget. It is a good thing to do more than what one is asked, she said when she turned around. Fiona threw up her hands. It is a good thing to be satisfied with someone's efforts, really. Marcus patted Fiona's back. Fiona started to put her head on his shoulder, but he stepped away. When is a woman ever satisfied? Marcus said. Men are quickly satisfied, all right, Karnachtoch? I started to agree when Fiona burst into a laugh. She smothered her face in her apron. You are a naughty monk. It is easier to be among men, I said, embarrassed. Morgan started to serve the meat as the children lined up with their bowls. Friday was a fast day for monks, and to keep it, I only ate bread and some whey. Edith, chewing her meat, saw this. Surely you must eat, she asked. It is a fast day for me, she whispered with a shy smile. No one would know. I would. She set aside her bowl and clasped her hands to join me in fasting. I gave her a gentle smile. You must eat, I whispered. It is right for you to eat. Can't I be like you? First, you have growing to do. She gave a little nod and went back to her meal, handing some leftover bread to little Emer. It was time to go. Morgan walked us to the boat on the rocks. She turned to me. The abbot permits you to teach her? Yes, for a little while, I lied. Morgan was looking straight into my eyes, as she had done before. I became a little short of breath. I wondered if staring deeply into each other's eyes gave her the same pleasure it gave me. I couldn't look away. Will it lead to anything useful? she asked. I don't know. I worry about Edith, and it seems to me it will help her soul. She is already too imaginative. She isn't rooted in practical matters. Is she lazy? Does she work? Yes, she works well enough, but sometimes I don't know where her mind is. She has flights of fancy. I will allow this teaching if it brings her down to earth. That's what she needs. I'll do what I can. Very well. Morgan rolled her eyes and sighed, her hands on her hips. 
I realized how tall she was, how solid and strong. She could probably raise a house beam as well as learn to read if she chose. Would you like me to teach you also? I suddenly asked. I have enough to do. Uh, of course. I felt embarrassed, because she needed nothing from me. But when she looked into my eyes again, her clear, lapis-blue eyes looking straight into mine, my chagrin melted away. Edith has much to do also, but for now I'll allow it, and we'll see. Of course. Thank you. Good night. As we rowed back to Iona, the waves beat under the skin of the boat like a heart. I felt my blush must be visible in the moonlight. I became resigned with the boys. One day, tired of their boredom, I raised my voice. Don't you burn to know the language of God's holy word? This learning opens up for you all that humanity has achieved, all that we understand of God's grace. With these letters, you can discover the turmoil of young Augustine, the miracles of the saints, the very words of the apostles. This language is a direct road to all that is valuable in the world. One boy looked at me in wonder. The others only looked confused. What legacy could I leave? I was starting to doubt everything. My desire? My mission? Perhaps everything had been a mistake. It was still my first year. I was still a penitent and hadn't taken the final vow. Perhaps I shouldn't. Perhaps I should return home and die with my people. The world might end or not, and my dream was only a delusion. The lump in my armpit had grown bigger, as had the new one in my groin. The leech had said it would end my life. What was I doing? I didn't admit this to myself at the time, because I lived blindly. But I had caused suffering to come here. Others had suffered for this mission, to scribe a great gospel. To go back would mean all was for nothing. I was stuck, and all around me was failure. One day on the other island, we heard the children calling from outside, Bees! Bees! In the middle of the green, the children grabbed handfuls of sand and threw them on the bees to make them stay, chanting, Sit down, sit down, bee! Saint Mary commanded thee! You shall not leave, you shall not fly to the wood! You shall not escape me, nor go away from me! Sit very still! Wait God's will! I joined in. I looked at Morgan and we laughed together. If the bees remained, they could have honey on the island, something most of us had never tasted. By the next week, Morgan had woven a basket, and the hive hummed under the rowan tree at the edge of the hollow. The air around the houses 
quivered with their motion. In the spring, it was strange to notice how lush with yellow and white wildflowers Iona was, in the meadow between the monastery and the sound, and right across that sound the island of women was so barren. The few purple wildflowers clung desperately to the rocky outcroppings, trying not to slide into the sea, straining in the wind. Short grass grew in the hollow of the island, nibbled by a few cows, and the bees had to fly over the few yards of sea to mull to find their nectar. There was no herb garden, no fruit trees, no wood to hide in or flowers to braid in a garland. The women, like the bees, had to search and find, travel or import, and make do. But they stayed without question, simply meant to be here, apart from the fertile land on Mull or Iona. Iona was for the monks, and the island of women the gift of Columba to them. There was a constant negotiation between the monastery and their island for resources and goods, complicated for both the women and the abbot. Iona seemed a paradise of riches compared with its sister's dry, rocky inheritance. But it drew the bees. It drew Marcus and me. It had something else, a richness of voices, of calm amid the buzzing of the children, of serenity born of tough-mindedness and laughter. When we were about to leave one Friday, Marcus approached with something in his hand. I have to think it is good to have an apt pupil, he said. He handed over a small wax tablet made of thin boards with a hinged cover. I took it, surprised. That's kind of you. We pushed off the coracle and jumped in. Marcus nodded to the tablet. I take it uh, this is a secret? I thought about lying, but... Marcus's matter-of-fact gaze gave me confidence. Perhaps a little, Marcus nodded. We will keep each other's. I didn't know what secret Marcus was referring to. I recalled Jeremiah's accusations and decided not to ask questions. Emer ran up and threw her little arms around my leg. What did you bring? I bent down and scooped her up. Why, did you expect me to bring something? Because you have something in your hand, she kicked her feet. It is not for you, but if you'll hold this, I'll show you something you may give. I handed her the wax tablet and then opened my palm to show her a small shell. She pressed the wax tablet against my chest, trying to give it back so that she could take the shell. I want to give it to him. Edith had caught up to us, and Emer thrust the tablet toward her, almost knocking her off balance. Emer snatched the shell from me and wriggled, trying to get down from my arms. 
Edith grabbed Emer's foot with her free hand. You're being rude, Emer. Emer stopped squirming and grew serious, twisting the shell in her hands. May I? She looked me in the eye, her face earnest. Yes, dear. She scrambled down and ran off to find Brian. Edith started to hand the tablet back. I'm sorry. She's still so very young. I gently pushed the tablet back toward her. Emer is giving out the presents today. That's for you. A book? She stroked the wooden cover, opened it to examine the pale orange wax, and pulled the slim wooden stylus out of the leather thong on the side. I write in it? It is a practice tablet of wax. She closed the cover and pressed it to her small bosom. You're too generous, Brother Tach. I looked around for Marcus, who had gone ahead and disappeared already. It was really Brother Marcus who passed it along. She crossed her arms over it. Both of you, then. She took my hand and walked to a bench outside the house, where we sat in the sun. From inside there was soft singing, a child's song, a cooing sound from Gwyn in her bed. Edith opened the tablet and slid out the stylus. Please dictate. Spell the words that are important. I smiled. Deus. D-E-U-S. I know that one. She scratched into the wax, wrinkling her nose. Saint. S-A-I-N-T. Emer and Brian approached, their hands thoughtfully behind their backs. What are you doing? Emer asked. Shh! I'm writing, Edith said. Emer perched on the edge of the bench and watched while Brian folded his arms, standing by. Columba. C-O-L-U-M-B-A. Edith pursed her lips with concentration while I added, When you know more Latin, there are sentences that contain every letter of the alphabet. They're called absedinarian sentences. Edith laughed. Absedin... For ABC. For example, Transethirice globum scanduat tua facta Per axem. What does that mean? Edith asked. Your achievements rise across the earth and throughout the region of the Zephyr. Edith laughed again and clapped. Then she tilted her head. There was no W in that sentence. I patted her head. You are smart. But there is no W in Latin. Brian took a step closer. If I say something, can she write it? If I spell it. So, I can say whelk? I nodded. W-H-E-L-K. 
There's my W, Edith said with a giggle. Emer hopped off the bench and ran inside. Mama, Edith is writing! The singing stopped and there was a muffled sound. Come out! Come out! Emer yelled. Edith slowly finished Welk, and Gwyn appeared in the doorway with Emer. Gwyn was tall, like her brother. In the strong light, her skin was transparent. Blue veins on her forehead and hands. Her gown was loose and large around her frail body, hanging in folds from her sharp shoulders. She leaned against the doorframe, her thick brown hair wild. She gazed off, squinting at the bright sky, not looking at us. Spell Mama, Emer said. M-A-M-A. Emer tugged Gwyn's hand, but Gwyn only glanced down, a distant smile on her face. See, Mama, look. Edith held up the tablet of words. Emer pulled Gwyn closer. Oh, this is devilish, Gwyn said. Her eyes narrowed, and she reached to grab the tablet. Edith snatched the tablet back. It is holy work. The monks would not do a devilish thing. Gwyn's stern face crumpled in hurt. Is it not? She leaned and started to fall. I jumped up and caught her. It is no harm, I said, holding her up. Her body was light as a bird in my arms. Morgan approached, carrying a milk pail. Edith, take this and start it, she said. But I'm writing. Morgan put down the pail. Her strong mouth was set. You were writing. Now you are starting the cheese. Edith laid the tablet on the bench. Yes, Morgan. She rose and took the pail around the side of the house. Emer took Gwyn's hand and led her back inside, while Brian ran back to his shells. Morgan and I faced each other. I felt a little weakened by her grim expression. It is quite something. You got Gwyn out of bed, she said. I cleared my throat. <clears throat> I suppose so. I don't know the ways of the monks, she said picking up another pail by the doorway. I can't tell you your business or if this is a productive thing to do. I mean no harm. She motioned for me to follow, and we walked across the green and up the rise to the cows, where one red cow hurried up to us, eager to be milked. Morgan led the cow to her stool. Edith is not a monk, she said, starting to milk. I held the cow's head still. Of course, but she needs something. She needs to stop dreaming. She has always dreamt. Her mother dreams in bed all day, and Edith dreams while she's awake. I said, she dreams of a bigger life. She replied, Life is big enough. What can you give her? 
What she needs is not going to come from the monastery. Soon she will need a husband, and I pray once she is settled she will find her way. I think it is peace she needs to find. Morgan stopped milking and leaned back, stretching the tension from her shoulders. Is peace found in writing words? I find peace in it. I don't understand such things. I looked at her intelligent face. I think you can. I think perhaps you do. Morgan went back to milking. I don't feel right arguing with you. I only fear for her. She is not finding her way by learning the work of a monk. The cow stamped its foot and snorted. Her milk was done. Morgan stood and I took the pail. I struggled whether to tell her about the rocks that were in Edith's apron the day I found her. Please don't ask me to stop so soon. She shook out her arms and stretched to her full height. Her hood had fallen back and she smoothed it over her black hair with a sigh. <sighs> I will not forbid it, but I will seek counsel or... Ask you to. My heart skipped. Brissal had already denied permission. Would Morgan find a way to ask him about it? Allow me to, I said. She shrugged. All right, then. We walked back to the house. Marcus had propped a ladder on the side and was on the roof while Fiona handed bundles of thatch up to him. There you are, Marcus said. There you are, I replied, climbing up the ladder to help. It was a relief just to work for a while, filling the gaps with reeds and bunches of herbs to ward off vermin. The warm roof smelled of the sweet-cut thatch, the herbal blossoms, and the scent of peat coming up from below the mingled scents heavy in the air under the glowing sun. When we were finished, we sat looking at the green below. A few children ran among the cows, the women sitting outside drop-spinning wool. Edith had finished her cheese, hanging it up to drain, and sat on the bench again, studying her tablet. I leaned back and stared up at the few scattered clouds, while Marcus sat propped on his elbow, I closed my eyes as the island hummed around me. What do you mean? Marcus asked. What? You just asked what to do. I didn't open my eyes. I didn't know I spoke. Are you going to stay all day? A woman's voice asked. Fiona had climbed the ladder and was standing with her head at roof level. Flowers were tucked behind her ear. Marcus crawled over to the edge, and as I looked, he gave her a kiss on the forehead. It was only a peck. It could have been a kiss of peace, but the way she smiled up at Marcus told me otherwise. Marcus had a wife. Fiona stepped back down the ladder and Marcus followed. I sat up and took a final gaze around. 
the bell was struck across the sound on Iona, and I could just make out the white robes of the monks gathering to enter the church. When I came down the ladder, Marcus was waiting, and we each took an end of the ladder to carry to the shed. We lay the ladder on the floor. It was close and dark inside after the bright sunlight. Is Brian your son? I asked. Marcus's ironic smile was visible in the dark. Stepson, you could say. You don't fear the sin? What about you and Morgan? he asked. Don't be absurd. You know there is nothing there. Marcus gave a little chuckle. <laughs> I suppose some of us are not as holy or as cold. In the dark shed, I tried to search out Marcus's face. So I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. If I sin, then I'm sinning. But if I don't sin, it's only because I'm cold and inhuman. You have me bound in your logic. Marcus folded his arms and tilted his head with a gentler smile. Perhaps I am unjust. I don't always sin, you know. Sometimes we just talk. It can be just as much a relief. You do confess, don't you? Of course. Marcus nodded. Of course you do. But Kanachtach, confession isn't just enumerating your sins. I think you need to talk. Unburden yourself. I don't think you do confess. You keep much hidden. God knows my sins. I hide nothing from him. And from yourself? I paused, swallowing around a lump in my throat. I cannot escape myself. That is my torment. Well, then unburden yourself. I feel your suffering whenever I see you. I put my hands to my face, wiping my eyes. Marcus put his arm around me, but I stepped away. I'm fine, I cleared my throat. I appreciate your gesture. My only burden is my own sin. My unknown sin, whatever it is. God loves you, Kanachtach. It is in that that you find solace. Let God know you. Marcus's eyes, always so penetrating, were soft with understanding. It's time to go back, I said. Yes, but please remember my words. We have a bond, keeping each other's secrets. I hope you know that. I nodded, not sure of what to say. Then I gave Marcus the kiss of peace, and we went outside. Chapter 12 A Death I hated teaching the boys. One typical day there was a snort of laughter, and I looked up, but the boys were still. 
I looked at my book again and heard another snort looking up quickly. Taryn's head was turned to the side, and he pushed the stylus beside his nose, appearing as if he were pushing the stylus up his nose as Rafe snorted again. Taryn, this afternoon you will only have bread and a bowl of whey, I said. Taryn set down the stylus and slumped. Yes, master. Why didn't they love learning? When I was a boy, I lived for these lessons. Was I so peculiar? Did I never know what typical boys were like? Now teaching Edith was my only solace. Sometimes Kayla came with us to help with chores on the other island. As he chopped kindling, he began a light song about the birds of spring with its rhythmic chorus. Cuckoo, cuckoo, he sang. Edith and I were inside. She turned her head. Cuckoo, she sang. Cuckoo. They sang together, looking at each other through the open door and smiling. I drew her attention back to her page. She read the page aloud and said, Done! and leapt up with a dance step. Oh, that was a good lesson. Thank you! She hurried outside. I left, walking past Kayla and Edith, who were engrossed in conversation, and went to the shed. I took the pruning hook and began to sharpen it when Morgan entered. Lesson over? she asked. Very much so. She smiled at me with a twinkle in her eye. I saw them talking. Who is he? Slave to the monastery. He was a masterless boy, and we gave him a place. She nodded. No land, no cattle, I added. She gave me an exasperated smile. Yes, but we'll have the honey. I continued to sharpen the hook. Yes, Edith would have to marry. She was not a monk. And I was selfish not to want things to change. I still expected some reward for waiting ten years, and now for doing a job I hated. At the monastery... I prayed in St. Columba's tomb until the muscles in my back knotted and I broke into a sweat. I prayed for peace, but peace was the furthest thing from my mind. As I came out, Jeremiah approached me. The day was gloomy, the sky heavy and grey. A breeze insinuated itself between my cowl and neck. Jeremiah's face looking down on me was pale, his light eyes flashing in the gloom. What of Brother Marcus? he asked. He tried to suppress an eager smile. I felt he would have liked the dirty details, an eyewitness. There is nothing to the rumor. Jeremiah's tongue darted to the corner of his mouth. He came here as an oblate, given to us by his parents. I am not sure of his sincerity. A healthy young man has needs. 
If he has needs, I don't know about them. I am not his Amchara. And what of your needs? Jeremiah's look turned wrathful. You are not my Amchara either. I know you are alone sometimes with a woman there, Morgan. I clenched my fists at the sound of her name in his raspy voice. If I have been briefly alone with her, it has only been to give instruction on the souls of her children. You must be above reproach, Brother Canochtoch. You must not allow for the possibility of a stained reputation, of gossip. Gossip? Or did you force such words out of a young slave boy? I could picture Jeremiah relentlessly twisting Kayla into talking. And if you threatened or beat it out of him, why question me? I want to give you the chance to repent of it and reform so that it doesn't go to the abbot. I grabbed his arm, wanting to push him down. What do you want? Jeremiah raised his eyebrows. Whatever do you mean? I seek your best interest. He pulled away with an air of cold dignity. A few raindrops fell on my tonsure. The cold of the day, the cold of the man, bore into me. I've told you all I know. I'll take better care not to be alone with the woman. Is that all you want from me? Jeremiah smiled, his grey teeth in shadow. I had almost forgotten. If you prove yourself, I could speak to the abbot about our need for more scribing. I have a certain influence. Perhaps a new gospel is something we should have. I looked at him in surprise. I want the path to righteousness to be an easy one for you, Jeremiah said. I pulled the hood over my head against the rain, looking up at the man's jaundiced face, and stood tall. The path is a steep and narrow one, I said and one that I don't expect you to walk with me. I turned and left him. It was July, the hungry gap when the bread was gone until the harvest. The children chewed blades of grass between their teeth, distracting themselves with any game they could think of. Morgan asked Edith and me to row the few yards over to Mull to forage for acorns. I carried the basket while Edith picked through the nuts on the ground. Morgan thinks my learning to write is useless, Edith said as she dropped a few nuts into the basket. Perhaps it is. Why is it that something can seem so important when it is really so useless? It seems more, I don't know, a, a more real thing than hoeing in the garden or gathering wood. Those things are necessary for life, but life is... 
It has to be something more than that. Am I mad? I feel I must be mad. I set down the basket and brushed the hair from her eyes. You are not mad. Perhaps, though, you should tell me now about what happened the day when you ran into the sea. Edith's eyes clouded. It's all right now. But for how long will it be all right? Her eyes flew open wide, and she looked me in the face. I don't want to force you to talk, but I think it will help to find the words. She furrowed her brow. Find the words. I can almost write them now, slowly but surely. Some things can never be taken away from you, and it is strange. The things that can be taken away. Like your father? She leaned against me. When he was gone for a very long time, I thought he was coming back. I expected him. Every day, I expected him to walk in the door. I must have been mad to think that, but I did. Then one day, I truly understood. It took me two years. Perhaps I had to be older before I truly understood. He was gone. If only there was something. His boat, his net, something. She wiped her eyes. That was the day I met you. She took a deep breath, struggling to speak. Anyway, it wasn't only that. We moved here from Mull to be near my uncle. I told everyone on our farm to be sure to tell my father where we were. Her voice broke. We moved to this tiny, remote place. And life seemed tiny. Pointless. I felt we were hardly above the animals. Especially that day. But you have taught me that life is more. Even though it may be useless. But it isn't useless. It can't be. Oh, I must be mad, she suddenly laughed. <laughs> yes, I am. I put my arm around her shoulder. I must be mad with you. When the basket was full, we rowed back to the island. Morgan met us on the rocky shore. Go ahead and put them in the water to soak, she instructed Edith. I stood alone with Morgan while Edith disappeared down the hill. It was a bright, hot day, the sea below us deep blue and the sky cloudless. The rust-colored boulders were warm underfoot. I suppose your lessons can distract from our hungry state, Morgan said. Her face was gaunt from lack of food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of our Lord. She folded her arms with a sigh. <sighs> what is it that is in books 
that makes them so important. It felt good to talk with her like this. To be able to share the word, to express one's thoughts to the world, or, or privately to one person, and to make one's thoughts eternal. An author never dies. I can read the thoughts of someone long before me and respond to them and pass that on to future generations. She squinted disapprovingly. Men are so wordy. Men think that women talk, but I have rarely known a man who didn't talk and talk. Perhaps, but then I'm supposed to be on a vow of silence. And so you write, which is the same. So wordy that talk isn't enough. It must spill over to writing and into books. I think if something can't be talked out in a few minutes, it isn't worth going on about. I smiled at her. I think hunger has soured your mood. She smiled back. Perhaps. Is there nothing you would like to say? Either to the world? Or perhaps to your children's children in the distant unknowable future? She rubbed her jaw and pondered it. What is worth saying that lives up to your sense of eternity? And what might I say that later I wouldn't wish to alter or take back? What can be said that is eternally true? So fine and true, it should outlive me and all my kind. I waited, looking at her lapis blue eyes, bright in the sun. But she didn't go on. If you think of something, you'll tell me? She cocked her head. All right, but I won't let you infect me as you've infected Edith. She must find her way in this world, and she is not a monk. She must wed. The honey comes at the perfect time. It's a true blessing. Edith will have a dowry. We can get a few head of cattle and buy Kayla's freedom. I looked away. If he had cattle of his own, the monastery would grant him his freedom, I'm sure as long as he had a place. What's the matter? Your expression is pained. I shrugged. I didn't want things to change. She blinked at me. I thought Edith would be hurt. I was wrong. It isn't her. Was it for nothing? What is anything for? I'm sure you helped her. Besides, you brought Kayla. I understood everything she said was right, which only made it harder. This scribing means much to you, doesn't it? It means the world to you. Just forming letters? There's more. Fanciful designs? Edith never got to that, laying out pages of brilliant colored pattern, all sorts of colors, 
one gets from plants, stones, even beetles. Really? I nodded enthusiastically. Vermilion, scarlet from Spanish beetles. Copper, iron. I paused and gazed into her eyes. To catch the color of your eyes, I would need the rarest stone. Lapis lazuli from Arabia. She returned my gaze, and then her eyes widened in surprise, then softened. The sun beat down on me. I looked at her, unable to look away in shame. The wine stain on her temple was bright, her eyes blue flames, the bones of her face sharp. The look on her face was mild and understanding, and I did not want to be understood this way. I wanted to deny all that she was thinking, her assumption of my feeling, her tender sympathy. I liked her when she was hard and cool and strong. I didn't want this. I struggled to speak, the hot sun draining my mind of words. She spoke kindly. I had thought it easy for monks, because they did not love. It is one thing to give it up, to sacrifice for God. But it is a fine thing to find someone pleasing to wed. And Edith is not a monk. And love is commanded by God. Her frankness helped me speak. We do love. I held her gaze. Standing so close, I could smell her sweat and see the pulse in her neck. And we do sacrifice. I was dizzy with emotion and hunger. Perhaps it was the lack of food making me reckless. I took a deep breath and looked out over the slanted sea, which wavered in my light-headed state. To the west, Iona was close by, but to the north was the open sea. The tiny island felt unsteady, as if I were in a small boat. And we should not demand others to sacrifice. You're right. It is good to find a pleasing husband, if one is free to marry. I looked at her again. I can't help but think about my family. I have a niece who is blind. She will most likely have to sacrifice marriage. If one can marry, one should. And I have to wonder if by leaving her I've condemned her to even greater solitude. Edith often makes me think of her. I see. I see. Morgan said quietly. Her face was knowing and sad. We stood quietly. In the silence, my feelings for her floated in with my breath, a tide expanding my chest as wordless as the ocean. I would let her think a simple truth, that I was a monk, 
and that was the end of any possibility. The possibility that I could leave, that I could have a family, return home, that I had not taken the final vow yet, all that was made futile by the hard lump that ached under my arm. I could only make her a young widow. There was only now, this moment as we stood on the bare rock, sharing the harsh blue sky, listening to the cries of the gulls and the keening waves. Suddenly, a child's scream shrieked from across the island. It was not an ordinary, playful yell, but a scream of terror. Emer! Morgan cried. We ran down the hill to the beehive under the rowan tree. Emer jumped up and down, screaming. He was stung, and he fell! See! Brian lay on the ground clutching his throat with his tiny hands. Morgan and I knelt by the prone boy. His face was horribly swollen, barely recognizable, like a drowned man's. Carry him inside, Morgan said. I lifted the boy and brought him in, laying him on a mattress. Emer's shrieks had stopped, and Marcus held her in the doorway. He was praying aloud quickly and quietly. Fiona bathed her son's face with a damp cloth and tilted his head back. We must keep his throat open, I said. Brian's eyelids fluttered. Morgan held his head and put her mouth over his to give him her breath. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, Marcus whispered. Fiona's low voice joined his. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of hour. I could barely hear the last word. As Morgan breathed into the boy's mouth, Fiona cradling his head. It did not seem that Brian was returning her breath, and his eyelids stopped fluttering. They opened, still and staring, sightless. The room fell silent. Morgan gently lay his head down. I'm sorry, she said. Fiona closed the boy's eyes with trembling fingers. Marcus, holding Emer, came forward and knelt beside him. Emer gave a shriek, jumped out of Marcus's arms and ran outside. I raced after her. She grabbed a stick and ran at the hive, her small legs so fast I couldn't keep up. She stopped and swung the stick at the hive. It lurched and swarmed. She flung the stick away and was about to leap onto the hive to crush it with her little body when I caught up and grabbed her. An angry cloud of bees spun around us. Let them sting me, let them die, and let me die too! The only escape was to the water. I ran to the shore and pulled her under with me. Bees burrowed into the waves, some stinging us as they drowned, 
I plunged us in over and over as deep as I could until the bees gave up. Her retching, displacing her tears a while as we knelt on the rocks. Then she wailed. Let them sting me and die! I held her in my arms as she shook and cried. You should have prayed, she said, suddenly quieting. You didn't pray. You didn't say the words. From the green came the sound of children and women chanting. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, or as a watch in the night. As soon as thou scatterest them, they are even as asleep, and fade away suddenly like the grass. In the morning it is green and groweth up, but in the evening it is cut down, dried up and withered. Marcus came down to the rocks and took Emer from my arms. We will bury him with kings, he said. Cold and wet, she shivered, her silent tears trembling on her face. Marcus rode to the monastery and, with few words, returned with the abbot to pray over Brian, who lay covered with the blanket where we had left him. Then we carried him back over the sound where the monks had gathered on shore to pray for him, and we buried him in the cemetery among the kings of Scotia. Later Marcus came back and covered Brian's grave with his shells. A few days later, Jeremiah was in the house while I taught the boys. He sat apart, unobtrusively observing. I had the boys sing Psalm 90. Something sounded amiss. One of the boys was singing the wrong words. Everyone sit but Taryn, I said. Taryn, recite what you were singing. Taryn beamed and could hardly contain his laughter as he let loose a stream of profanity in Latin. Not all the boys understood it, but they looked puzzled and frightened. My rage seethed and exploded. To profane the psalm of God and to shame me in front of the abbot's assistant. Hold out your hands! I had never done this over the months, but without a moment's hesitation, I struck Terran hard with the willow branch, with four blows that left deep red marks. And afterward, go straight to the barn and spend the rest of the day shoveling manure since filth is what you love. Taryn sat, red-faced and trembling. We finished the lesson. When the boys had gone outside, Jeremiah put his hand on my shoulder. 
It was about time. I shrank from his touch and turned away. Later, Marcus found me in the crypt, and I cried in his arms. To be continued.